But we come now to the part of the service, which was the sermon, presentation. I feel spiritually fed already by the singing. Uh, let's see if we can maintain that sense of fulfillment over the next few minutes. The title I've been given is The Seven uh, Last Sayings of Jesus on the Cross. We are in a series on Jesus Christ. And as you can see, April 9th, that's today. It's a rough day for those who were celebrating Palm Sunday in Egypt. Maybe you saw it this morning, two churches blown up. It is the day of Jesus' triumphal entry. It's the first day of Holy Week in the broader Christian world. When Jesus came in and he was welcomed as a king by a possibly fickle crowd, and by the end of the week, he would be dead and raised from the dead the following Sunday. Palm Sunday, Jesus sayings from the cross, and we just have uh, two more lessons after that in this series on Jesus, on the resurrection, of course, Easter next week, and then the ascension. These seven sayings, I think, are pretty well known. And we're going to take time to look at each one of them. Now, they're a lot shorter than Jesus' other words. On the cross, Jesus doesn't tell a parable. And there's a reason for that, that probably he can hardly breathe. And I thought we would talk about the cross just a little bit so that perhaps we can imagine our Lord in love sharing these thoughts in his pain. Several crucified persons have been found. That is, their skeletons have been found. In the past, it was really a matter of speculation, but now we know that the legs, the feet were nailed to the cross through the ankle, one on each side. The feet were not overlapping as in a lot of Christian art. Also, you look at the shape of the cross. We'll come to that in a second. This is the earliest uh, graphic depiction of Jesus on the cross. This was found in Rome in the late 1800s. It's just a graffito. You can tell, I mean, graffitos norm normally aren't at, at a high level of, of, of workmanship, but still this tells us quite a bit about what's going on. We see two figures I'm sorry that the projection has cut off the top of the screen, the top of the picture. But this is the worshiper, and his name is Alexamenos. And then on the cross, there's a donkey, a jackass, facing left, and it simply says, Alexamenos worships his God. And perhaps, yeah, this is not a Christian graffito, this is... Uh, someone who's obviously making fun of Christianity, which would not become uh, even a legal religion for like another five generations. You look at the shape of the cross also, it may not be what you'll find in most Christian art. Now, what I'm about to share is not a matter of complete certainty, but I think it's quite probable. This is the cross, and that's because when the early Christians, and even a critic like Lucian in the second century, when they talk about the cross, they say it's shaped like a T. 
This is sometimes called the tau cross, because in the Greek alphabet, which I know you've memorized, right here after sigma comes tau. And so a tau cross is, is simply t. There's no further extension of the upright. Something might be put on top of that, and that would be the notice of the accusation. And so that kind of a cross. Again, I'm very sorry that the entire top of the thing has been cut off. If we look at Jesus' words, we'll see that on the cross we have these short sayings, but we could actually create seven sayings of Jesus before the cross. Like, uh, Simon, uh, are you asleep? And daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. The seven sayings do not appear in any single gospel. They're scattered throughout, and that means we have to collect them. And I tried to collect them. There's more than one way to order them. Some have to be earlier than others. What I'm about to share, I think, is most probable. And so we're going to look at not six, but seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross. And we'll begin right here when Jesus is being abused by the Roman soldiers. And I used to think mainly of them, but I thought about it. When he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, I think he's speaking not only of those who physically put him on the cross, but also of the religious system that he critiqued, that rejected him. And so I think that would include the Pharisees, the Sadducees, really everyone who's involved. And for me personally, this is one of the most amazing sayings. I mean, it's hard to imagine what it'd be like to be crucified, though sometimes uh, followers of Christ are crucified, even today, in places where Christianity is illegal. But of the seven sayings, this is the one that I personally would be least likely to say. I mean, I can see myself saying, I thirst, but I don't really see myself, you know, Father, just forgive them, let alone to claim that they don't know what they're doing. They know jolly well what they're doing. They don't deserve any forgiveness at all. We want people to suffer. When people are inconveniencing us, when they're insulting us, normally there's pushback. If someone cuts you off in traffic, if someone gives the credit to your fellow worker, your workmate, and not to you, when you did all the work, part of us screams out for justice. And, and yet this is not at all the case with the King of Kings. Jesus Christ is not bitter, and he's forgiving. He taught, as did his apostles, that we should always reply to violence with love. Jesus, in other words, if people let him down, he didn't unfriend them. We tend to pull back. Okay, I'm not going to invite you anymore. Jesus didn't do that. And you're wondering why it says, note on, oh, I'm so sorry, it's cut off again. 1 Samuel 23, 16. This is the passage where uh, David is in a really rough way. Um, I mean, they're trying to kill him. And Jonathan, his friend, who is the son of King Saul, the one who's trying to kill David, 
Jonathan comes to David and helps him to find strength in God. We may be very tempted to try to find strength from another member of the church family. I'm not against fellowship and helping each other. But biblically, we need to turn to God. There's no one in this room, this auditorium, who in the final analysis is going to help you and in whom you must put your trust and faith for salvation. Only Jesus. And that's why, as you can clearly imagine, note on 1 Samuel 23, 16. Okay, the next saying. Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. These are those words of Jesus to the thief, the penitent thief. Paradise, as understood by the early church, was part of the realm of the dead. It is where the righteous would be waiting for the judgment day. It was part of the underworld, Hades, also called Sheol in the Old Testament. The New Testament teaches in John 3, among other passages, that no one has gone to heaven. No one will go to heaven until the judgment day. And Jesus, therefore, is saying to the thief, I will see you today, because they're both going to the same place. That's on the Friday, then you have the Saturday, and then, of course, Easter Sunday. This thief took responsibility for what he had done. And amazingly, God gives a last-minute reprieve. Let's not write people off. Even the most unlikely of people may turn to the Lord at the end. Are you following me okay? This is the third saying. Woman, behold your son, and then behold your mother. Jesus is speaking to Mary, and he's also speaking to, well, the Gospel of John simply says it's the beloved disciple. Mary, who's devastated, probably in a way none other can understand. Who is actually standing around? This saying has kind of struck me a bit funny. Firstly, Mary has other sons. So why would Jesus entrust Mary to the beloved disciple? And what actually happened? Did he actually transfer her into a different family? What occurs to me that this is probably just a temporary thing. And also, Jesus' brothers, like the apostles, or nearly all the apostles, had not stuck around to watch the crucifixion. They'd run away. His mother needs support. And, of course, he's there with the aunt and also Mary Magdalene. And so that now, to me, makes sense. It's still quite stunning that on the cross, Jesus would be thinking about not his pain, but someone else's security. This is pretty stunning. As I studied these sayings, I noticed that the first three all have something in common. That is, caring for others in our pain when we hurt. And we all hurt at times, and some of us hurt most of the time. Where do we focus? Jesus cares about others. And so, next time you're in physical or emotional or mental pain, think about others. Saying for, Eli Eli This is found 
only in Matthew and Mark, but we believe all the sayings are genuine, even if they're only found in one place. And it's a quotation from Psalm 22, which is sometimes called the crucifixion psalm. Psalm 22 cannot be understood by simply reading one verse or even by hopping around and reading a few verses. Like, why have you forsaken me? They pierced my hands and feet. That's really not enough because this is a psalm of confidence. It's a psalm of rejoicing. Jesus is saying, as the position of the psalmist, feeling abandoned at this point, yet he has strong confidence that he will be rescued. So it's much more a psalm of rescue than of woe is me or, or, or total pain. And just as one example, when you go to uh, 2222, you'll see that the original psalmist fully expected to make a comeback and to have normal life again. This, of course, is a perfect scripture for the situation of the cross because this psalm embraces pain and victory. Usually, when we're in pain, we don't feel victorious, and when we feel on top of the world, it's because there's no pain. But I think we know even from our earthly activities, which are only a shadow of the spiritual life that Jesus calls us to, even in our earthly lives, sometimes there's pain and glory. Uh, you've, you've won. You, you threw the game-ending three-pointer, and you guys squeaked it out by one point. You may be in total pain, but there's glory there. They don't necessarily conflict with each other. Why, as we're familiar, the crowd responds to this saying, sounds like he's calling Elijah. It's basically because Elijah, in Hebrew, Eliyahu, begins the same way as Eli. Eli means my God. El is God. Eli is my God. So people hear Jesus saying, Eli, Eli, and it, it's quite easy, would have been quite easy for them to have concluded he was calling Elijah, when in fact he wasn't calling on anyone except God, and even then he wasn't saying, God, you've, you've left me, you've abandoned me, it's this is how I feel, this is my psalm at this moment, yet I know I will come back. And so this is a great lesson for us to keep trusting God even when he feels absent. Now, there are a lot of Christians in this room and probably a good number of seekers as well. Let me just ask the Christians in the room, do you always feel like God is present? Hmm. A lot of people said no on the left side of the auditorium. And so let me direct my challenges uh, to all of us. To all of us. It's in those times where God feels absent or he feels far away, when we push through that our faith can really be strengthened. That's where the tough spiritual work comes in so that our faith can be like gold. It's a refining process. Uh, it's a painful process. But we keep trusting God even when it seems, even when it seems he, he's not present at all. Well, what's the next saying? It's that simple, I thirst. In the Greek New Testament, it's not even that long. It's just one word, dipso. Jesus shares about his thirst, his feeling, his need. He doesn't say, I'm so tough, I'm going to die anyway in a few minutes. Let's just skip the drink. He 
shares. And I see a great irony in this. The Old Testament many times speaks of the living water. It speaks of our, our thirst being slaked by God. Jesus is the one who slakes our thirst. He spoke to the Samaritan woman, and he said, if you drink from the water I give, you'll never thirst again. I mean, Jesus, he's the bread of life. You could say he's the water of life, although that's not actually in the Bible. But this is the one who helps other people with their thirst. Now he, he's thirsty. This is a fulfillment of yet another psalm. Psalm 69, it's a messianic psalm, a psalm of the Messiah, a psalm of the Christ. If you're not really familiar with it, it might be a good psalm to read this week. And you'll notice many things connect with Jesus' life in Psalm 69. And you'll notice also that various parts of it are quoted in the New Testament. We come now to saying number six, which is, it is finished. It is finished. What is he saying? I think he's saying the work of salvation is finished. Although technically it would not be, it would be complemented by the resurrection and the ascension. But in terms of his life, his faithfulness to God, his taking our place to pay the ransom to the evil one, to Satan, that work is finished. We don't save ourselves, Jesus does. That's what it means. And it is finished, appears only in John, and that's quite significant. Each of the four Gospels has different themes. One of the big themes in John's Gospel is the hour or the time. We see it in John 2 when it says that Jesus almost rebukes his mother, Mary, you know, my time has not yet come or my hour has not yet come, depending on the translation. He doesn't want to, um, to set in motion too quickly the events that will lead to his death. And we see all, all of these. There are other uh, verses that talk about time, but, but they're not related to this theme. But these are related to Jesus' hour, that sense of timing, and it's building to a climax, a crescendo, and that's something you might want to check out later on, or, or next time you're reading John. Let's not look for rescue outside of Christ. It's not there. We won't find it there. We can't save ourselves. No other human being can save us. Only God through Christ. And this brings us to saying, number seven, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's so many cool things here. Stephen, here's a, I know I keep giving homework. I guess it's because I'm a teacher. I hope you have a good attitude. The death of Stephen, Stephen is the first Christian martyr. Jesus, of course, was Jewish, not Christian. Uh, Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter 7. And I think I found seven or eight parallels. Sometimes they're verbal, sometimes they're situational. Between uh, Stephen's execution and Jesus' execution. I found so much that last time I preached in Seattle, that was my message. Multiple parallels. And once again, uh, Jesus is in the thought world of the Psalms. So into your hands I commit my spirit is from Psalm 31. Now, Jesus hadn't just memorized odd verses. 
He knew more than verses. He knew the Psalms themselves and what they were talking about, how important that is. And of the seven, say, the seven last words of Christ on the cross, three of them tie into the Psalms. Now, what do we make of that? Well, one thing I make of it is that Psalms are especially useful to us in working through uh, pain. For me, probably 08, 09 was the period of the greatest pain I've ever had in my life. Uh, physical pain, extreme pain, and just a lot of hurt. Uh, you could call it mental or psychological or emotional. I don't even know what the difference is. For me, I decided to devote a whole year to the Psalms. This is how I dealt with it. Maybe you're more of a Proverbs guy. But I, I went to Psalms. I studied the Psalms every week. I read all the Psalms every week of the year. And then I ended up writing a book on this where I was vulnerable, where I shared um, how the Psalms have helped me. And maybe that could help you too. I'm not just talking to women in the room. Even for men. Jesus is the one who's giving us this idea of the Psalms. It helps us to think. It, it enables us to, to trust God uh, to, so that we can work through the pain. Trust God, not people, in our own pain, confusion, loneliness, disappointment, and despair. So these are the seven sayings. Probably most of them are familiar to you. If you've been a Christian for some time, they're all familiar to you. And with enough time, you could probably reconstruct them. But is that the last word? Well, we could go further. It occurs to me we could also make a list of Jesus' seven sayings after the cross. You know, what did he say after? Like, uh, what were you talking about on the road? And, woman, why are you weeping? But that's not in today's message. So we take those seven. Is there an eighth? Yes and no. I can see it, but you can't. Okay. In the mind's eye, in bold blue text, not black, but blue, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, did Jesus say that? That was the saying written above the cross in three languages. That was actually from Pontius Pilate. But it is a true message, and I, I think that's kind of cool. You know, above the cross, we had it in Hebrew, we have it in Greek, we have it in Latin, so that no one would miss the point. The religious authorities were pretty upset that uh, Pilate put it that way and refused to take it down. But there, there's an eighth saying, if you want more than, than what I've given you there. So what we see as we look at the words of Jesus on the cross is a way of, I think, processing pain. There's so much here that helps us to deal with pain in our lives. We learn not to give up on God, not to stop praying, not to push others away. Now, maybe you're not like this. When I'm in pain, um, I don't really want to be with anybody. I, I, I push people away. That's a pretty natural thing. Probably men more than women, but I'm sure there are women who've done it too uh, at some point in history. Don't push others away. Be open about how we feel. These are all lessons that come from looking at Jesus on the cross. Keep our priorities straight. I mean, Jesus is still thinking of his own family when he thinks of Mary. Our priorities like 
our friends, our finances, always putting God first, no matter what's going on, uh, staying connected to our family, not blaming or, or becoming bitter when others don't meet our needs, when in fact it's only God who can meet those needs. We should trust God, place our life in His hands, and uh, also get perspective and draw confidence from the Scriptures like the Psalms. In short, to allow God to work in our lives in His time. Because after all, no pain, no gain, no cross, no crown. If you would like to get the notes to the message, as you can almost see, the complete notes are at my website, or will be this afternoon, douglasjacoby.com. The seven last sayings of Jesus on the Christ in our pain, let's think of His words. When we are going through a similar situation, there's so many ways that we can benefit by examining those words of Jesus from the cross. Now you can go.